It's good to be at Fellowship. Myra and I slip in occasionally when I have a chance to be in Nashville and have a Sunday I'm not speaking somewhere. It was nice of Lloyd to to let me speak in this series as you're getting ready to do wisdom literature. He wanted four wise men. He said, I found three, but I have one Sunday still open. Could you come? So whatever. I'm, I'm glad to get to come. He talked about me taking an occasional shot or cheap hit. Yeah, from guys like him. <laughs> Last book I did a couple of years ago, he mentioned it. I knew Jesus before he was a Christian, and I liked him better then. I've had more comment about the cover blurb that Lloyd Shadrach wrote for that book than about the book. It begins, I knew Rubel Shelley before he wrote this book, and I liked him better then. No kidding. Lloyd has become a real friend. Um, I've had him up to Rochester College at least once, maybe twice, and I forget whether it was a graduate seminar or senior seminar in ministry. Yeah, I had him do some teaching and share on a topic or two, but I, I told the students, more than what you hear him say, listen to his heart. Here is someone who loves Jesus, loves the Word, is a creative teacher of the Word. I I marvel at Lloyd's ability to to be creative in the way the message becomes fresh through him as a teacher. And, And then the way he loves people, the way he loves and ministers in this church. So I really am honored to get to be here. Um, no, I, I won't be the president of the college, thank God, after August 1. I, I, I went there to teach. I am not an administrator. I, I despise administrative chores. And I, I, I have done what I have done out of a sense of calling and duty and obligation. But I've been praying, God, give me relief. So I'm, I'm looking forward to August 1. Um, I asked Lloyd last night, do you know the meaning of the verb to chancel? I don't know what a chancellor does, but I'll, over the next year, I'll, I'll try to find out. And then who knows? I don't know what we'll do after that. Maybe we'll move back here. Turns out we're pretty rich. We had money that I didn't know about. Uh, I've been in ministry over 40 years, preached thousands and thousands of sermons, found out just a few weeks ago that Myra, there was this box under our bed, one of those covered solid things. And I, she said, it's private. Don't you ever look in there? Well, I peeked and it was just full of cash, (laughs) thousands of dollars. And I said, Myra, where did this come? She said, well, I told you not. I said, well, I've already looked now. So tell me, she said, the day we got married, all those sermons I've listened to, Every sermon I thought was good, I put a dollar in that box. And the ones that I thought were stinkers, I put eggs. And I felt pretty good. I, all that cash and were three eggs. And she popped my bubble. She said, yeah, I put two or three dollar bills in it over the years, but every time I'd get a dozen eggs, I'd sell them and put the cash in and... <laughs> So I don't know, maybe, I I don't know what life holds. Let me take you to a text that you may have puzzled over as I have. It's in Mark 8, 
I'm going to begin at 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Holy God, help us understand from this text an insight that might be key to some of us who are met in the name of your Son today. Amen. You have to admit that's an unusual story. There is no parallel to it in the other synoptics. John tells no story comparable to it. There are lots of miracle accounts in the Gospels, somewhere like 38, 39 of Jesus or around Jesus' life, but none done in stages except this one. The blind man receives a touch. Do you see anything? Well, yeah, but it's fuzzy. I, 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 see, I see people, but they, they look like trees walking around. Jesus touched him a second time, and he saw clearly. 2020. What's going on? Is that a low-power day for Jesus? <laughs> Seems irreverent even to ask that question. Don't mean to be irreverent just wondering out loud, what's going on here? Why in stages, when he has healed other blind people simply by a touch, he's healed lepers by a touch, he has healed people at a distance by a word, he has raised the dead. Lazarus, come forth. The widow of Nain's son touches him. He's alive. I know he didn't have to do it in stages why in the world did he do it? I had this professor in seminary who used to say, if you came across one of those hard-to-pronounce names or a really confusing section of text, he said, just feel reverent and move on. Well, I think he was being facetious, but I do that with some of the names, okay? I can't pronounce that one. I feel reverent and move on. I think the thing to do with a text like this one that is so startlingly different is to sort of walk around in the text a little bit and then maybe walk back before to what you've read and walk after and then come back and, and pray and say, God, surely, surely something done this unusually was supposed to catch attention and show us something. What am I missing? I think I know. If you look back in, say, verse 17 or so, the disciples have been sort of fussing, questioning back in verse 14. And they discuss this, verse 16, and say, well, he said something about Pharisees and bread and, and yeast. 
Maybe it's because we don't have many provisions with us. We're not carrying bread around. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Hmm. Guys, do you have eyes but you're just not seeing? We talk that way, don't we? I know you saw that, but I don't think you really saw it. (laughs) I know you heard her, but I don't think you really heard her. Well, then if you go after this episode, you see this marvelous confession that Peter makes. What are people saying about me? Some this, some that. What do you say, Peter? You're God's Messiah. You, you are, you're the son of God. You're the one that we're, we're ready to follow. We've been looking for you. Blessed are you. Now, let me tell you where we're going. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'll be killed. And what does Peter do? He says, uh-uh. Now, whoa. You've just confessed he's Messiah, Lord. You'll follow him. You'll listen. You'll be his disciples. He lets you in on the deep secret of Jerusalem and the cross. And you say, what? Uh Uh-uh. Jesus says, you Satan, you. I've told you, but you won't listen. Get behind me, you, you Satan. Mark sometimes does what we call sandwiching. There will be an event, there will be an event, the two pieces of bread, and in the middle, a chunk of meat, And the two pieces of bread help you understand the meat. That's what we have here, I'm convinced. Do you have eyes to see and you don't see? Peter, I'm the Messiah. You're ready to follow me anywhere. I tell you where we're going and you say, that's not going to happen. The healing of this blind man was an acted parable. Oh, it was a real event of healing. But at the same time, it was a teaching parable about the fact that the disciples in general, Peter in particular, would sometimes hear Jesus say, see Jesus do, be given an answer for the sake of their understanding, and they would nod and not get it. You ever been that way? I don't mean with your mama when you were small. I don't mean with your wife when you were being thick-headed. I mean in your experience of Christ. You see enough that you know He is who He claims to be. You understand enough about Jesus to know that you have hope nowhere else but with Him and in Him. And you flee to His embrace. But life is still hard.
the business fails anyway. The marriage breaks up. My child dies. Or worse, becomes addicted or is arrested and incarcerated for 20 years. But I thought if, if, if you knew God and, and, and if you were saved and you knew Christ, I, I've heard the TV preachers, I, I, I was told that everything comes together and Jesus makes the pieces fit and life becomes, whoa, you've been lied to about other things too. I grew up in a godly Christian home. My mother and father, the best two people I'll ever know on this planet. I say about my dad sometimes, if I could ever be half the man my dad was, I'd be twice the man I am. And that's not rhetoric. That's just the truth. I don't know a time that I ever heard the name. I don't think there was ever a time growing up in that home that I heard the name of Jesus spoken with anything but reverence. I remember in July, I was 12 years old at a revival meeting. I, I, I confessed Jesus in front of a group of people. I was baptized, didn't have baptistry heaters in those days. The water was cold. I remember that. When I was 13, I preached my first sermon. It was about John the Baptist setting the table for Jesus. It was marvelous. <clears throat> at 14, I was preaching full time. And since age 14, I've preached. And out of the deepest and most sincere of conviction, every day of my life, tried to share the gospel of Christ as best I knew the gospel. Went off to Bible college for two or three years. And didn't really need to, already knew everything, but, but I went off to Bible college for two or three years and just got, you know, grounded. Got all the answers to all the critical questions. And I could have given, to, given them to you on a three-by-five card, room to spare, maybe the back of a postage stamp. Met this beautiful girl that took my breath away. I was a fast talker. I talked her into marrying me. And so we got married and we go out to take on the world with the gospel. And what I preached as gospel wasn't gospel. Out of my own bent for it and out of the tradition in which I was trained, a pretty rigidly legalistic tradition, all I knew to preach was essentially bad news, not good news. It was the bad news of moral performance and achievement and doing and earning and being and then maybe snowball's chance in hell you'd get by. And I became so frustrated that I prepared to leave ministry because what I preached was burdensome, and it hurt people. And it gave an edge to me, not just to my speaking, but to me. that It didn't look like Christ. 
And then you have a heartache or two or you have a life experience or you encounter a teacher and it, it sort of rattles your cage, but, but you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I hadn't seen that. You know, I, I, I knew that story. I, I knew that verse, but I don't think I understood that part. God was so good to me. Not a second touch, but a third and a 47th and a 493rd. And, and I finally discovered what the gospel was. The good news of what God has already done through Christ and the fact that that is his free gift to me for the taking. And I was allowed to see God finally as a loving father rather than a stern judge or warden. It finally dawned on me that my heavenly father was as good a father as that good man I'd grown up with in his house. That even though I, I could sometimes be so stupid and I could, I could act so inappropriately, the question never was, is daddy still my daddy? <laughs> is this still my home? Am I welcome here? But for years, I had preached the gospel as the bad news that if you're not careful, your daddy won't love you. You won't have a place here. I needed a second touch. I knew enough to know I needed Christ, but I knew so little I didn't know his heart. That may resonate with some of you. In whatever context, whether out of a Christian home or as an adult, you run into the story of Jesus. Maybe you encountered it as I did. And, and, and maybe, maybe there was a time that, that you needed somebody to step in and almost with hobnail boots, give your life some structure. And, and maybe the legalism and the rigidity, it saved you from the sort of self-destruction path you were on. But after a while, that rigidity becomes a tight box and a choking collar. And Is this what Paul meant when he said, it's for freedom, Christ has set me free? Or maybe you learn the gospel in the context of, yeah, but if you accept Christ, life is a breeze and it's smooth sailing. But your husband died or your wife and children to be raised alone and not enough insurance and not enough help or, or, or business and, and bankruptcy or where is God? Is the promise of the gospel, if you know Christ, there are no problems or the problems have easy solutions? Hey, listen to me. If that was the gospel, we'd all be Christians because it'd be the cheapest insurance you could get. But if being a Christian simply meant all your problems will go away, you'd be a Christian just because, like me, you're so stinking selfish, in which case I don't think you'd be a Christian. You'd just be a self-serving sinner. Follow the logic. The promise of the gospel isn't embrace Christ and all the problems go away and life becomes easy. The problem is you will never be alone. 
The devil's going to do lots of things in this world. He is the prince of this world. He is the prince of darkness. He will throw everything at you that he can. Don't think it's God's will that those terrible things happen to you, that you were molested as a child, that you were abandoned as an adult, that you were betrayed by a friend. These are things that Satan does to break you. The promise of God is not those things stop if you know him, but that you are not alone you will have grace to survive and to heal and to overcome. Remember Paul's prayer, Lord, take this terrible thing away, this thorn in my... Paul, my grace is sufficient. Maybe there's an alcoholic in the room. And life is spinning horribly out of control and you're afraid you're going to lose it all. Maybe you've already lost it. In Alcoholics Anonymous, I've seen more of Christ shown to people than some churches are capable of showing to Christ. Because in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's acceptance and accountability and nurture over time. And sometimes in church, there's just the kind of counsel that is harsh judgment and that sends him straight to a bar. I guarantee you. Church is the place where God's people accept, hold accountable, but nurture one another over time so that the Spirit of God can do His life-transforming work. Church, really be family. Family's not just let's meet and greet for 90 seconds. Family is... I'm going to love you through the hard time because I'm going to need to love you when I'm down. Or maybe the issue is not you, it, it, it's your child, the hurt, the grief you're going through. M maybe it's the marriage, maybe there's not an addiction issue, but the, the marriage, it, it's just on such thin ice, or maybe it has already failed. And all those things happen, and you know what will happen? You can even begin to doubt that you know Christ. If I'm a Christian, why, is, why does this happen to me? Because you live in a fallen world. And because Satan is out to hurt you and destroy you if he can. Where is God? Giving a second touch, a third of grace through someone who loves you through the difficult time, through an encouragement you get when you thought you were at rock bottom, through hope that is offered you when you felt there was none left. Lord, why did you heal that man in stages? Why did you have to touch him twice? Maybe to remind my disciples who sometimes see and hear but don't quite see and hear. Maybe to tell Peter that, well, even after I try to tell him what's coming, he's, he doesn't know it yet, but he's going to deny me three times. Well, boot him out for that. No, 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 no. When I see the women after the resurrection, I'm going to say, tell the guys I'm going into Galilee, I'll meet them there. And by the way, be sure to tell Peter that he is to show up. Why? He's going to need a second touch. Well, the 14th or 18th, whichever one it is for Peter. 
I'd like to think I'm more like Paul. I see Paul in the New Testament as that guy from Damascus Road forward. He'd die for Jesus. I'm much more like Peter. I can pop off and say, yeah, I believe and I'll do and I'm your guy and fail so miserably. Not follow through. Embarrass myself, hurt people I love. I'll meet you over in Galilee. (laughs) Be sure to show up. (laughs) So what for us? Let me summarize it this way. The bad news is, no, not everything's going to come clear the day you meet Christ. Not everything gets fixed when you accept his salvation. Not every wound from your past is healed immediately. Not all the bad theology you may have been handed in your youth or in the process of your conversion is confirmed as true. Not all your family issues, not all your personal addictions, not all your financial problems disappear. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The healing and stabilizing and sustaining touch of Jesus continues to come to us throughout a lifetime of struggle and struggle and struggle leading to growth, perseverance, character, faith that has been refined until you see first one thing and then another more clearly than you could have seen it if you had not gone through the struggle. And finally, His face, His face, 2020. Lord God, thank You that You bear with us in our juvenile faith. Thank You that You show mercy in our wounded state. Thank you that you continue to dispense forgiveness in our fallenness, our sinfulness, our weaknesses. Thank you, God, that we know you as a loving, sustaining, gracious Father who touches us again and again and again. And for the man or the woman, the boy or the girl in this room, who today came not really wanting to come, (laughs) believing it was getting to be just sham and show because they're so distant and you are so silent to them. Touch her. Renew hope in him. Let them know how real and present you are for them. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.